Well, good morning, church. So good to see every one of you. I'm seeing a lot more faces, people coming back from the summer, some of our college students returning, some people have been traveling. Uh, it's, it's so good to see all of y'all in worship this morning. And, and by the way, sometimes it's a surprise because some of you guys show up, you know, a few minutes after the singing. So I'm like, oh, wow, they're here this morning. Great. It's a wonderful surprise. I'm, I'm like a pure face and forward. Um, but anyway, we're, we're continuing our sermon series called Prophetic Vision seeing the world through God's eyes. And when you see things from God's perspective, everything changes. You see things for as they are, and you see things for as they ought to be. And we've been spending a month each uh, with the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, We've been through Isaiah, who gave us this beautiful vision of a renewed world under God in His kingdom. Uh, And we got to Jeremiah, who gave us some hope as well, mainly had negative things to say uh, because of the people's sin. Uh, and he said that the people did not, weren't listening to God, they were unfaithful to God, they were cheating on God, and they needed to repent. But the people did not listen, they did not accept their personal guilt or responsibility. So now we get to Ezekiel, and things are not better. Isaiah and Jeremiah had warned the people that God was going to punish them for their sins by sending the nation of Babylon to bring them into exile. And when you get to Ezekiel chapter 1, this is exactly what's going on. The exile has already begun. In fact, Ezekiel himself is in Babylon with the exiles. And the people still cannot see that they are the ones who are responsible for this tragedy happening. In fact, Ezekiel 3.7 says this, But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you, that's to you, Ezekiel, because they are not willing to listen to me, for all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. So God had called, it's your job, you're going to be a watchman, you're going to warn the people of further judgment, further consequences for their sin, because Babylon was going to come and finish the job and destroy Jerusalem. But the people still aren't willing to listen, even though they've seen the exile already beginning they don't see their situation from God's eyes. Their wrong perspective has warped their minds seeing the, the reality around them. I would submit to you, just like the people of Israel, we suffer from seeing things from the wrong perspective. And we need the Holy Spirit's help to see things from God's perspective and to see the world ourselves through God's eyes. So, I think there are at least three things, three things that we need to see from God's perspective. We, we need to see responsibility, our relationship with God, and repentance through God's eyes. And we'll take those one by one. So number one, responsibility. We can't blame others for our lives. We are personally responsible for our actions and their consequences. Now, one of the reasons God's people could not hear the message of the prophets is they had the wrong perspective about responsibility. Now, there has been an important shift that is taken place in chapter 33. Ezekiel 33 is connected to Ezekiel 18. They are nearly identical passages, but an important change has taken place. So let's look at Ezekiel 18. It says, Then another message came to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all the people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. So what's going on 
There is a common slogan, a common proverb going around, a common complaint. The parents are eating the sour grapes, but it's the children's mouths who are puckering at the taste. In other words, the, the parents are the ones who ate it, but we're the ones experiencing its effects. They, they ate the grapes, but we're the ones getting the bad consequences. It's our parents who failed. It's our parents who sinned, and we're suffering the consequences of their choices. Now, I want to be clear. It's, it, it's undeniable to any of us that we, we suffer from the actions of others around us. And as a parent myself, I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that my life, my character, my decisions are shaping my children pretty much more than anything else. And when there is brokenness in mom and dad, when there is brokenness in the home and in the marriage, children suffer, and the grandchildren. And that's, you know, when the Bible talks about sin visiting to the third and fourth generation, we know that sins of others affect the generations coming after us. But the people are not merely, are not merely saying that we've been affected by our parents. They are complaining that God is punishing them for their parents' sin. That this exile that we are in is our parents' fault and God is punishing us for it. The biblical scholar Christopher Wright, I think he puts it well. He says, children and grandchildren do in fact suffer the consequences of parental sin, but courts of the law were not allowed to inflict punishment on them for parental crimes. Innocent people do suffer as a result of other people's wickedness, but that does not mean that courts can punish the innocent for the sins of the guilty. And this is the same with the Lord. God declares that he will not punish you. He will not punish people for other people's sins. And that's good news. That's good news. We will, we will not die in the judgment. We will not be condemned in the judgment for something someone else did. Praise be to God. But we are personally responsible for our own lives. It's not their parents' fault they are in exile. But the, ir the irony is, far from being innocent, the present generation is just as sinful as the one that came before it. But they have not accepted personal responsibility. They have not owned up to their sins. And I, I think if you, we examine ourselves, this is far from an ancient problem that doesn't apply to today, right? Am I right? Friends, we will never find life if we don't own up to and accept personal responsibility for our lives, our sins, and their consequences. But in our culture, I think maybe perhaps more than in, in other times, we're prone to shift the blame to somebody else or somewhere else. Perhaps like the Israelites of old, we, we blame our parents. Well, it's, it's, it's just how I was raised. It's, it's how I grew up. Uh, it's just how I was taught. My sin is not my fault, but it's my parents' fault. Or perhaps we blame the previous generations. If, if, if only we were in charge back then, then we would not be in the mess that we're in today. We know better than what they were doing generations ago. Or perhaps we blame things on our personal characteristics. We say, well, it's just my genes. It's just who I am. It's how I was born. It's just my brain chemistry. It's, it's just my personality. Well, your personality is selfish. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Pastor. I... I can't be faithful to my, to my spouse. I just, I'm, just, I'm just wired for, for, lot, for lots of intimacy, and, I, and I, I just fell in love with somebody else. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just who I am. No, it's not. You sinned, and you need to own up to it and accept what you've done and the consequences of it. 
Perhaps sometimes we blame the world. Oh, it's just how the world is now. Everyone's doing it. There's nothing we can do. Sometimes the problems of the world, maybe they feel too big, so we, we throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing I can do to make a difference. So then we shirk our responsibility to do our own personal stewardship and what God calls us to do. Or perhaps we might blame our problems on God. Again, I like what Christopher Wright says. He says, to the extent that any of my misfortunes are being inflicted by him, I am not so much a sinner as a victim. And the victim mentality is also a major barrier to the gospel, for it provides the perfect defense. I should not be the one being accused here. I am the injured party. God is the one who needs to repent and change so that I can forgive him. This is the gospel stood on its head. Friend, maybe, maybe you were dealt a bad hand in life. Maybe some bad things have happened to you. Maybe some things didn't go your way. It is true that we suffer from other people's choices. But know that God will hold them accountable for their choices. And he knows the hand you were dealt. He has grace and mercy upon us. But now it's your choice. It's your choice how to respond to the life that you, that you have now. It's your choice to choose how you will live and how you will respond to what's happened to you. And I just want to encourage you, don't fold your bad hand. Don't fold your bad hand. Play the hand that you got to the best of your ability because that's what God wants us to do. And that's where you can find life because you can make a change. You can become a different person. You can be transformed. You can find healing in Jesus Christ. Where you are in life, who you are in life is mostly the result of the sum of all of our choices to the things that we respond to in life. And we will never find life until we accept personal responsibility for our lives, for our choices, for our sins, and for our consequences. So admitting this, owning this, this is the first step to seeing things through God's eyes, to receiving grace for what we need. And this is how we can learn from our past, learn from the previous generations, learn from the mistakes that have been made so that we can grow into a more Christ-like person. There's nothing you can do about the past. You can only take personal responsibility for the present moment. And that leads me to my, the second one that we need pers- perspective shift on is our relationship with God. And about this, I want to say our past deeds do not determine our destiny. Our present repentance does. If you're following along in Ezekiel chapter 33, we're now at verse 10. It says, Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Now, this, if you've been with the prophets, this is a dramatic shift. For the first time, the people have finally acknowledged their sin. They realize what they've done. They realize they are responsible, that they are in this mess because of their own choices. And they say, well, our sins are weighing us down. How can we live? So then it says, verse 11, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? See, as a just judge, God is punishing sin. Now, human beings may or may not Take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but God never does. 
God would rather long that they turn and repent and find life. What, what, what gives God pleasure? What makes God happy? What makes God rejoice and smile? Didn't Jesus tell us? When just one sinner repents, when just one sinner turns from their wicked ways and turns to God, all of heaven rejoices and applauds. This is what makes God happy and pleases Him. And as long as you're alive, no matter what you've done, there is always the opportunity to turn back to God and find life and forgiveness. He is happy to show compassion and mercy upon you. As John Foreman wrote, every breath is a second chance. Every breath. God lays this down as the way that he will relate to us, his creatures. Verse 12, if someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. Again, God is teaching them the right perspective about their relationship with him. And sometimes we don't, we don't see it from this perspective. We, you know, I think we often see our relationship with God as merit-based rather than relationship-based. And, and I, I brought a little illustration for you. Uh, this is a, a marble system that we use in our home for Daisy. And the jar with the heart on it is the good jar. This is when she, when she does her chores, when she does what she's supposed to do, when she does something good, when she goes above our expectations. This is not the bad jar. This is the neutral jar. So it's not, it's not like you get bad ones into the, the bad one. Though we could, that might be a good idea. <laughs> but when she, does, when she does good things, when she obeys, she gets jars from the neutral jar into the good jar. And when she fills up the good jar, the heart jar, uh, she gets to redeem this for something good, uh, something of her choice. Usually she chooses frozen yogurt at Red Mango in South Wheaton. And she gets to go pretty often because she's actually a pretty good little girl. Now, this may or may not be a helpful tool for parenting, but it's a poor image of our relationship with God. Our hope is as parents that one day we won't be using this marble system. That would be ridiculous, right? I mean, as you grow older, you know, we want her to make choices based on what we've taught her, her character, her life. This is just a teaching tool that we hope she abandons, that we abandon in the future. But often we have this approach to our relationship with God, right? If we think, well, if I just do enough good things, if I just get enough good marbles in here, then I can bring this to God and exchange it for a relationship with Him. I can bring my good deeds and exchange it for heaven and eternal life. But no, that's not how it works. This is the wrong perspective. Perhaps with that perspective, we think if, I, if I've done something wrong, we might think, well, I, lose, I've just lost, I just lost a little bit of marbles. I'm kind of okay. I still have enough marbles left over for God to love me. Um, or perhaps we think we've done something really wrong, and we think all, all my marbles are gone. The whole jar is empty, and so we think our relationship with God is lost. But no, every person who owns their sin and repents can be forgiven. If they turn back to God and start living for God, forsaking their former ways, God will wipe away all the previous sin that they committed. Isn't that amazing? Every sin wiped away. If God had kept a record of sins, who could stand? But when we turn to him, he wipes it away. This is the God who forgives our sins. Now, certainly God does not gloss over their sin. 
and evil. Notice he calls the person a wrongdoer, and he says to them, the wicked person, you will surely die. God pronounces his judgment on living in sin. You will surely die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if they hear God's word, it says in verse 14, if the wicked person hears it and they turn away from their sin, they do what is just and right, they give back what they took in pledge, they return what they have stolen, they follow the decrees that give life and do no evil, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right. They will surely live. Our past deeds do not determine our destiny. Our present repentance does. And it's not that all these good deeds that you just heard, it's not that those earn salvation back and make up for the bad things they've done. They're just demonstrating the fruit of true repentance. They have truly turned away from their sins and they've turned to the living God. It's not the good deeds that saves us, it's the God who saves us. It's being connected to him. I'm turning from evil and I'm turning to God. This is... Really good news for the sinner. If you've wandered away, if you've fallen into sin and you recognize that 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 life, that that path leads to death, it's not too late. Come back to God and be forgiven and all your sins are wiped away. But this is also a challenge to the righteous person, right? That was also in the text too. Let's not gloss over that part. This is a person who generally chooses what is good, but maybe it's a person who goes to church, it's a Christian. And, And God says in verse 13, If I tell a righteous person that they will surely live, but then they trust in their righteousness and they do evil, none of the righteous things that that person has done will be remembered. They will die for the evil they have done. Now, it says this person trusts in their righteousness. And I kind of think of it similar. You know that uh, parable that Jesus tells about the, the, the rich man who stores up all of his wealth and then God comes to him and says, you fool, what have you done? You've stored up all this judgment for the judgment day. I think sometimes we do that with righteousness. We think, well, well, I've got enough marbles in my jar. I've been following Jesus for decades. I've been going to church my, all my life. I really don't have to pursue God right now. I really don't have to try that hard. I can kind of rest securely in what I've done. But God says to this person, don't trust in your righteousness. Don't trust in your righteousness. The Bible calls every Christian to persevere to the end. It's possible to start the race, to run the race, but be disqualified. I mean, the Apostle Paul, who I can't imagine having any lack of zeal, he even describes this himself. He's like, hey, I've got to preach to myself as I'm preaching to others so that I won't be disqualified. So Paul was worried about that, at least least cognizant of that. I don't think he was worried about it, but I think he was cognizant of, I am called to persevere until the end. That's the call for for all of us. Because if the righteous person forsakes God, if they turn to evil, God says the opposite. All the righteous things that they have done will not be remembered. They will be wiped out. You know, sometimes you hear of of pastors or or spiritual leaders who fall away, who who commit atrocities of of evil. And sometimes you hear that they they never own it. They've never come out and said they're sorry. They've never repented. And I just want to say it doesn't matter how great their ministry was. Does it matter all of the righteous things that they have done? God will hold them accountable for their sins and their lack of repentance. It doesn't matter how righteous we were at one point in our lives. What matters is our present relationship with God. 
our present repentance. Again, Christopher Wright, who obviously was influenced, influenced me on this text, he says this, Watch yourselves, warned Moses. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, warned Jesus. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall, warned Paul. We never grow beyond the need to continue making the active decision to love and serve God in righteousness of life and behavior. It was to those who had grown old with him after a lifetime that included the wonders of the conquest of Canaan that Joshua issued the memorable challenge. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Choices matter all through life. They've been following, Jesus, they've been following in the, God in the wilderness for 40 years, and Joshua still says to them, choose again. Choose this day whom you're serving. You know, Paul even often warned the churches. To, the, to those who were in the church, he, he warned them, he gave them this warning, that those who continued in sin would not inherit the kingdom of God. To the one who continues in greed, oh, let's be careful about that one. To the one who continues in greed, the ones who worshipped idols, to the sexually immoral, the ones who engage in the illicit and alternative sexualities of our world, to the ones who are drunkards and thieves, those who are at enmity with others, the strife and the jealousy, the anger, the quarreling, the dissensions. Paul warns over and over again things like this. Those who continue like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the path of death. So even for Christians, this warning to surrender to God in, a, in repentance is still valid. If we forsake Christ and do evil, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's about choosing to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ in the present moment. So friends, how you start does matter. How you finish is what ultimately matters. But we can't control what happened in the past, and we can't fast forward to the future. So all you can do right now is, am I surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord? Am I pursuing him? Am I turned towards him? If I'm attached to him, if I'm following him, then there's no need to worry about our salvation. We're attached to Jesus Christ and we won't be lost. So what kind of path are you on right now? Are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you repentant of your sin? Now, some people, they hear this message and they conclude, well, this is not fair. This is not fair. You know, this is, in fact, this is what the people say in verse 17. Your people say the way of the Lord is not just. Because if the evil person who's done evil can, can repent and be forgiven and their former sin is wiped out, that's not fair. And if the righteous person who maybe in a moment of temptation falls away, their former righteousness is not counted, then this system is not fair. And that leads me to my last point. We need God's perspective about repentance. The Lord justly judge, judges sin and graciously offers us life through repentance. We have to read what comes after that second part of verse 17. The people say the way of the Lord, it's not fair, it's not just, but it is their way that is not just, the Lord says. God points them back to their responsibility. He is not the unjust one. We are the sinners. We are the unjust ones. We are those who are in the wrong. So every person is all on the same plane. We have all sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God. And we're all under the same potential condemnation of that before the judge of all the earth. But God says, if the righteous person forsakes, 
uh, and does evil. Their deeds will not be remembered. Now, again, this does, this perhaps sounds unfair, but if a runner is running a marathon and they decide to drop out with a mile to go, is it really unjust to say, well, they didn't finish? That's really not unjust. I mean, that's just describing the reality, right? So the Lord is not unjust to hold us accountable to finish the race that he's put us on. And he's so gracious to the one who stumbles. He's so gracious to the one who veers off course that he welcomes us back with open arms. In fact, he wants each one of us to finish our race strong and well. And the Lord, I think, fairly and beautifully offers everyone in the universe the exact same deal. If you turn to me, you will live. By his grace, by his mercy. For verse 18, if a righteous person turns from the righteousness and does what is evil, they will die for it. All sin will be judged in the end. And verse 19, if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness and does what is just and right, they will live by doing so. Yet you Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to your own ways. God is not judging you for anything anyone else has done. He is offering the same evaluation, the same deal, the same offer of forgiveness to every person. So repentance, it's not our way to earn God's forgiveness. It's the way to life. It's the way to God. It's the way to walking with Him. It's the way from turning away from evil and walking with God. This is life. So we have to shift our perspective about what repentance is. It's about faithfulness to the one who has come to save us. So friends, this, this prophetic vision describes in part the, the, the good news that we now have available through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have been great sinners. Can we not admit that? We have participated in the evil and brokenness and injustice of the world. We have been deceived into choosing evil over good countless times. And because of our st- sin, we stand under the constant need of God's grace. And God sent his perfect son to share in our nature, to take every sin upon himself, including yours, the debt that was against you, he nailed to the cross. He died on the cross. He rose again. He defeated death by death itself. He ascended to the throne of the universe. He is now Lord and King, and he invites everyone to repent because one day he will come again and judge the living and the dead. So today, today is our day of opportunity. Today is the day to surrender to the king. Today is our, ta- our, our day to repent and choose life. There is one way, there is one name under heaven by which you can be saved. His name is Jesus Christ. If you've never surrendered to King Jesus or you need to do so again today, I invite you to turn and live. Live in him. Find life in his name. If you need help with that, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service. Or perhaps you're here, you followed Jesus for a long time, and I just want to encourage you, remember, as Paul said to Timothy, to watch your life and doctrine closely. Don't drop out of the race at the end. Don't forfeit away your faith. Stand firm and persevere. The end is coming soon. Continue to accept responsibility for your life, for your relationship with God, and for your own repentance. Choose Jesus every day over and over again. As Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow him. We choose it every day. 
And remember, God is faithful. He is faithful to strengthen you to the end. And with Him, we're going to make it. We don't have to be afraid.